You're about to experience a new way to thrive in martial arts by exploring who you are, what you love and standing up for what you believe in. It's time to rise because this is where we challenge and say no to outdated industry norms and say yes to change so that we create a healthier, happier and thriving martial arts community. I'm your host, Laurine Zuhake. Welcome to the Rise to Thrive podcast. In today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Round. Chris is the Judo Program Director for High Moon BJJ and Fitness in Alexandria, Virginia. A black belt under two times Olympic coach Jimmy Pedro, he underwent several years of instructor training before branching out to lead several programs. After teaching at Pedro's Judo Center, he went on to apprentice under Dr. Roddy Ferguson and developed scouting reports for members of the 216 US Olympic team and 219 US World Team. He has worked with elite judo, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and mixed martial arts athletes like Nick De Popolo, Ryan Hall, and Tang Lee. He holds the ranks of Yodan in judo and brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And he is certified as a continental level coach for the United States. As you can imagine, it is teaching and coaching that is today on the menu. Enjoy! Welcome, Chris. I'm very happy to have you on today's podcast. Please introduce yourself and what is your role in martial arts? Thank you, Lorian. Um, so my name is Chris Round. I'm a judo instructor in the United States. I've been teaching for about 16 years. Um, at this time, I coach uh, um, students of levels ranging from you know brand new beginners, um, both at the adult and kind of younger levels, to folks trying to make the Olympic team for the U.S., that's a very broad skill. So how many hours do you teach? And do you also have like specific classes like for beginners and all that? And do you have specific classes for those that may make it to the Olympic team? How does that work? So right now, my club's somewhat small. So I'm able to like run very bespoke practices where, you know, all right, it's the same 90 minute period that everybody's in. But hey, I know this person needs X and this person needs Y. So generally speaking, I have a generalized curriculum I'm pulling from that is applicable for everyone on the novice and intermediate ends that can walk through. Whereas a lot of times for folks who are more advanced, um, I'll pull them to the side and even say, hey, beforehand, this is what you are going to be working on today. And what I find is when you have such a mixed group, the thing that makes a difference is just being well prepped ahead of time. Um, I think this is much easier to do now than it might have been 30 years ago in terms of, hey, quick shooting off a message, hey, how is this technique feeling? Is there something we need to problem or adjust? And you can have those conversations really, really easily or exchange video very easily. So I'd say, you know, on paper, I only teach three times a week. The reality is I'm kind of always on. Um, I have a student right now, they're training in Japan. They're sending me questions every few days. Um, I have another player I actually work with in Germany um, as like an assistant type coaching role. So I'm doing scouting for them. So the thing that's interesting is when you look at things at the elite level and even recreational level, when we're talking about, they're both, they can both be types of special education and they just require actually sometimes similar teaching techniques. Um, but you are being very bespoke and what you're, how you're approaching it. So how much time does it like take? So if you have, a bunch of students and they all have of course different needs um, and especially when you have a mixed group of all levels and you 
prepare beforehand, you need to know them quite well. And you also need to know um, not only like their skill set, but also kind of like their mindset, where they are at, like on a mental, emotional level. So mm -hmm. how do you, can you give some tips to listeners? Like how, how do you do it? So I do it a few different ways. You know, one thing I've maintained is I've maintained a group chat that most of my students are in, most of my students are adults. And you do start to get a sense of people's personalities. Of course, you have to moderate that well. Um, but you start to get a sense of, hey, this person, and you when you pair that with how you see them in practice, or you see them before and after practice, you go, okay, this person's a little bit more reserved. Maybe I have to go to them a bit more if, to see if they have questions or needs. Or, hey, this person will tell me whatever I need to know as I need to know it. And all I need to double check is, you know, do a quick, like, all right, is what they're asking about, does that make sense for their game or, you know, stuff down that line. I'd say in terms of prep, I would say that at this point I've been doing this so long, I can kind of just drop into a practice as long as I know the students. But typically when you're first starting out with a group like that, you know, it's 30 minutes to an hour of prep to do it really right after you've had them for the first couple of weeks. Um, that way you know, hey, what am I teaching? where the need is going to be. And sometimes I can change on the fly. Like, you know, I have my belt requirements that I need everyone to have, you know, coming from judo, we're a little bit more strict about that stuff than presenting jiu-jitsu. But, you know, I might show up and suddenly none of, you know, I have my two elite students and then I have three people who are very, very beginners trying to teach how to fall all in the same practice. And having a culture where, You know, people are used to the fact that, hey, not everyone in the room is going to be doing exactly the same thing. And people know, like, hey, there's the area where folks maybe are injured or they're working around something. They're going to have their own deal. That helps, in my opinion, like kind of setting that standard ahead of time. A good example of this is I actually flat out tell people if they're injured, like, still come in. We will find something for you to do. If that makes sense. Yeah, I love that also. Like I actually yesterday me, like I, I am now recovering from an injury and um, we had an open mat and one person was like one of my students was there and I said, well, I can only offer you this because of the injury I have. And so we can work, you can work on this. And he was so happy to do it. And even though it's really like a beginner white belt, since we have indeed this, this thing that we always look for possibilities, like we accept limitations because sometimes you are like with me with my injury, certain things I just cannot and should not do. But Instead of focusing on that, I focus like, what can I do and what can I offer that student? So we had actually a good time and he got to work his escapes and work on these things. And like that, everybody was integrated. And even I was lucky that I got some something in. So I like this, that you kind of split the group. And I think it also creates this environment where people are not so cutthroat and not so comparing because everybody's focused on like, what can I do right now? Instead of, oh, can I do it this row or as well as the other. No, you're focusing on what you need right now. And I think that is such a mind shift that helps and creates a, a great gym and a learning environment. Thank you. And you know, one of the things when I was talking about prep time is the more you get used to running things in this fashion and, and know that this model, you know, the larger the class, the more instructors you really need on the mat to do it well. You know, just as you develop techniques for in martial arts, you develop techniques for teaching like, oh, okay, this person's this person's got a hurt foot. Well, which foot is it? Okay, it's their it's the foot for their reaping leg. Okay, we can work around that. We can work on some stability exercise. We can work on kind of doing some shadow judo, so to speak. Or, hey, this person has a bum shoulder. I, I actually have six screws in my left shoulder so I can 
I have a whole back catalog of stuff I can pull for them. But that amount of prep time shortens the more you experiment and more you learn, hey, this works in this situation. This doesn't work in this situation. Yeah, so that brings us really like to limitations and possibility because you also have experience with neurodivergent students and really finding ways to make it work. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So the origins of that and that approach actually stemmed from my own coach. So I, I was very lucky. I came up under um, Jimmy Pedro and his father. They're IJF Hall of Fame local coaches. And Jimmy was one of the first teachers I had had that, you know, had kind of sat and said, hey, you know, it's good to know about his limitations, but okay, what can he do? And that was a big change for me um, at the time as someone who'd been coming up on the autism spectrum and having some difficulties in school. So that kind of spirit of, all right, well, okay, he's got limitations, well, what can we have him do is very much where, how I approach things now. The thing when you work with neurodivergent students this is when, when I talk about things being a little bespoke. It does depend on what you're dealing with. Like, if I have a couple of students that have PTSD or have had PTSD uh, historically. And some of that is, frankly, sometimes you do have to have an open conversation, say, hey, you know, what triggers are we dealing with here? So I had a student who they did not like flashing lights. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty easy to accommodate. We had a speaker in the corner that if it was such a certain setting, it would do that. So I'd, I'd make an adjustment or we necessarily wouldn't use that for portions. A good example of an issue I've seen with students with PTSD is it's very hard for them to relax. It's very hard for them to become less tense. And of course, it's a problem in the context of grappling martial arts because they hurt themselves, they could hurt somebody else um, because they're so tense. So you start off by one, making it very clear, like, hey, you're in, yeah, this is a combat sport, but this is a safe space. You know, we're here to learn and enjoy it. But there are certain drills, for example, there's a drill I picked up from Justin Floors that was really cool that I call it the push hands drill. And the purpose of it is just so people understand that I don't have to push super hard <laughs> to create movement within grappling. But you find those kinds of games that maybe they're more a little more lighthearted and it causes people to mentally relax. And then it's teaching them that they have to be somewhat relaxed while they're grappling and that over time, I found really made a big difference in some of my students that either have PTSD or just have some kind of a history of abuse or difficulty. Um, autistic students, I sometimes say, like, I'm not the only person who said this, like, autism is more of a soup than a spectrum. People have different elements, and it's, uh, depending on, you know, kind of what the particulars of their own autism is. I do find that the students who develop like a hyper focus for judo, like that's that's their special interest. They're a joy because I can send them whatever they need or are interested in and they're all over it. Um, but what pairs with that is you have to come up with a lot of patience because especially early on, you work on gross motor skills. To some degree, you know, back when I was coming up, I eventually didn't have to go to occupational therapy anymore because Basically, occupational therapists like, well, judo's occupational therapy on steroids. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, to be very clear, I'm not saying replace occupational therapy with judo. It's a bad idea. But you kind of start with that, and you start with really providing a lot of patience and runway for the person to start building these foundational movement skills. And you know, talking back to things being applicable across the board, a lot of the foundational movement skills you might spend a little bit more time on with someone with gross motor issues. Those are foundational skills that everyone else needs anyways. 
if they can't do the basic step patterns, then how are they going to do, you know, the fantastical highlight reel throws? So it can be as an instructor, sometimes there is a patience issue. You know, maybe you had something like that was really interesting to you. You wanted to teach, but you know, this who shows up. And I've jokingly said that, you know, when you're a martial arts instructor for better or worse, you are a combination of a personal trainer to some degree, some mentorship. Um, and then in some cases, I've jokingly said a priest or a counselor. <laughs> and, and there's some toxic parts of this. People are looking to you for guidance and help. And the more they can trust that, hey, maybe I can't touch my toes right now, but you know, Sensei Chris will help me figure out how to do that. Or I'm having trouble balancing on one foot. Or I'm really uncomfortable defending mount. You know, having... I guess to the core of your question, really, it's about developing trust and in turn, making sure you develop the skill set to reward that trust. I also think that even when you have the best learning methods, if there's no trust, it's not going to help. Like you said a lot, like uh, if we just go back to the PTSD part, like the nervous system only when it is activated in the parasympathetic nervous system, they can calm down and they can learn. Like when you're in a constant fight flight, you cannot learn. That's why games are so important, because as you say, like the stakes are low. Like you're not immediately in this winning, losing situation. It's just a game. And we also have this hand pushing and all kinds of other, we call this conversation starters um, to really- Oh, that's a great way to do Yeah, it. to really start the conversation because some people we also work with, touch is so difficult. And also not only because they find it challenging to touch somebody else, but often they lost their connection with their own body. For some, if they hold like, a, you know, just have a grip on the gi and they feel that their hand is getting tired, that is for them huge because sometimes they don't feel it and suddenly they feel some sensation in their body. And that is so huge. I think that martial arts can be in that regard, not replacing therapy, but can be super therapeutical because you can help them to reconnect with the body and also to learn to get into touch with other bodies as well. Also for people without trauma or anything like that, I think games are just so important because we, we play a lot of games because then I can get also people to work in specific positions they normally don't find themselves in so that they don't become like one trick ponies. Because often, you know, if we feel like we have maybe a talent or something goes really well, people tend to keep on doing it because it gives success. Mm -hmm. But I also know eventually people figure out how to counter that. So I kind of want to be ahead of that curve. So we kind of, in a gentle way, force them in different types of positions so that they also learn there. And since it's just a game, like you don't mind when you lose. And then to your point, with neurodivergent students, the motor things is like so important because they start to feel their own body, but also the body at one point of somebody else, because that's also something like, say you want to hold somebody on the ground, pin somebody, that's a lot what you have to do yourself and also the sensations you feel under. And I think martial arts can be so great for neurodivergent students. And also indeed, as you say, if hopping on one leg is difficult, but you tell them like, that's okay. I'll help you. You will, you will nail it. No, no worries. We just going to put in the work and you will get there. And I think that can be so encouraging that people believe in them and that they don't feel like, oh, I'm failing or I suck. No, it's just something that you have to work on. And if you do, you'll get there. I think it's a very honest way also of dealing with students that some others don't. Like in Germany, I, when we spoke briefly, I say like, uh, we always ask parents to let us know. Um, because some get off meds and these sort of things. It's just good for us to know. I don't care, but it's good that I know so that I can also respond better. But since it's a little bit taboo in Germany, they often don't talk about it. 
because some clubs they don't accept they're like no i'm not gonna waste my time so we had really some parents crying when we were like no they're very welcome please tell us uh, as much as you kind of know that can help us to figure out how they learn because every person is again different i mean i have also as few they cannot focus in school at all but if they wouldn't have told me i wouldn't have realized it in class because they love jiu-jitsu so much that they are so hyper-focused like really if i wouldn't have known i would not have thought that they would be on the spectrum for instance so it, it shows in so many different ways which i find is really amazing and it for a coach it's not easy but i am i love learning and i love to 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 figure out this puzzle like how can i find the most effective way for this student to learn optimally yeah i think one thing martial arts you know you know we have grappling backgrounds. And one of the things I like about grappling and working with neurodivergent students and working with maybe someone's working on injury, there's so many different pathways to actually grapple and to actually be effective and find ways to you know create winning conditions that it's one of the few spaces where a limitation doesn't have to be a game-ending limitation. In fact, you know, we saw this a few years ago. There was a phenomenal wrestler in the United States who made the finals of the NCAAs. And unfortunately, he was missing um, his legs below the knee. And he actually created some advantages from that. It became very hard to score on him. He found ways to create situations that were unique to him. There was actually a judo player in the U.S. back when my father was competing. was a Vietnam War vet. Similar situation on one leg. He lost far of his leg below the knee. And he became incredible at groundwork. And because he was big for his weight class, he was able to really take advantage of that. You know, when you start, it's finding where is the pathways for you. And then you can sometimes even, as I said, sometimes you can turn those into a strength where you can create a situation that someone who maybe is able-bodied or somebody who isn't neurodivergent, they suddenly have to deal with a situation they're not running into every day. And that's also part of where you know, being a coach is fun because like it can get boring to teach the same things. If you treat students who maybe aren't showing up as, you know, the six foot 10 perfect athlete and you recognize that it's a puzzle for them, it's a puzzle for you and it can be really fun and intellectually interesting. I think the hard part when working with students like that is just the, it's the very beginning. It's feeling out, it's developing the relationship. Um, but once you're off to the races, you're really off to the races. It's gonna be, it can be fun. Yeah, I mean, like there are many. I mean, uh, Michael Jordan. We all think, oh, the Michael Jordan, but he wasn't as uh, considered talented at all. He wasn't picked at all. It's very fascinating. And like, and also Muhammad Ali is seen as like he was kind of portrayed as doing everything wrong. I mean, back in the day, they were even like what I read was very fascinating. They were um, measuring what kind of like the perfect torso and 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 uh, reach and all that, and he had none of that. He mm -hmm. had none of that. People say like he, his footwork, everything was like bad. And yet he figured out ways to still win. And mm -hmm. I think this is like what I find so fascinating that sometimes people um, stare too blindly to what they would deem as like talented or, you know, maybe blessed with a very athletic body and all that. I mean, like, mm -hmm. like I've seen so often people who may seem not so talented or maybe had to put in a whole lot of work, but in the end... They, in the end, got further than those that were supposed or were set, you know, like, oh, they're like kind of like the promised uh, new stars. And I think um, as a coach, I really 
kind of like all of them. And so far, I have also seen that just because somebody has maybe good cards to start with, that doesn't guarantee anything. Absolutely. And, you know, this kind of comes to something we were talking about and, you know, our previous conversation. When we're talking about these things, a lot of times what we're dancing around are disability issues, you know, talking about things. And I, and I defer you because you have the stronger expertise in this area. Um, but, you know, talking about things about, you know, what is the medical versus social definition of disability and, you know, how do you include that in your own work? Yeah, so disability studies is very fascinating because it was started by people considered to be disabled. So it was really like a bottom top thing um, because indeed they felt that if you were in a wheelchair and you do desk work, are you then disabled? No, you can do it the exact same way as somebody who would be considered abled body because they can just walk without wheelchair. So the social one is really like, as long as you can do what you set out to do, there is basically no talk of disability. Whereas, of course, from a medical perspective, well, if you cannot use specific limbs, you can talk about a form of disability or um, impairment. And I think it's important to see the differences there, because just because you physically may be limited to some point doesn't mean that you are also socially disabled in that you cannot participate in society. And I think that is the key thing here, especially with indeed, there are many grapplers, people who are blind, who are missing limbs, who I don't know, and they participate. It is possible. Of course, they need to put in the work. And of course, they need to be surrounded by coaches that understand that and who are willing to find indeed the possibilities to find ways to do it. If you're unlucky and there's nobody really around you, it's difficult, or at least maybe you have to do it in a different sport. So that's all like kind of disclaimer, but it is possible they can participate in society and um i mean my master thesis was actually about uh physically disabled slaves in antiquity and kind of like mm -hmm. how and, and interestingly enough is that to them even in the in, in the law the roman law when it came to to slaves as long as a slave they literally say it doesn't matter whether they have like 10 like more toes or more fingers as long as a slave can do what you want to do they're not disabled so you cannot go back and get like your money back mm -hmm. and that was very fascinating to me because in some ways i found they were more open-minded when it came to being able or disabled than we have nowadays in our modern society but as long as you can do your thing of course you can talk about whether slavery is good or bad i mean that's a different thing but like from the culture in that time when you could do what your owner wanted to do, you were not seen as disabled. And there actually, when you were a dwarf or had any really a hunchback, anything that but they would find very, very fascinating, these slaves were much more expensive than healthy, able body, the typical slave you could put to work. Because, well, for one, they could avert the evil eye and they had all kinds of additional things. But they were usually, yes, they were put on display, but on the same hand, they were also... Uh, they got their own quarters, they got room and board, they got also treated in some ways as well. So it's a very complex give and take of thing, but that actually in antiquity, sometimes a disability could, um, could bring you at least good food, board, this sort of thing. It was not that you were necessarily discarded and seen as if you were useless, which sometimes in the modern times, it's sometimes more often seen that if you lose specific capabilities, either through you're born that way or because of an accident or anything else, that you get really alienate, socially alienated. Yeah, that's, real, that's really interesting. And, you know, one thing I'll sometimes bring to coaches is, you know, I was mentioning earlier kind of the connection between working with elite athletes and assisting them. 
and working with folks who have more limitations, you are going to run into moments when you're working with lead athletes where they have a limitation, where someone's blown out an elbow, someone's blown out a knee, and hey, look, whether it's we have to create a new game plan because suddenly it's not wise for you to play the game the way you were playing it, or it's, hey, we got to stay in shape. We still got to work on things. Let's figure it out. Um, the moment where I, I made this connection was I was training at the National Training Center for the Canadian team. And I look over and there's a guy I know and he his right arm is in a sling, but he's still on the mat practicing. And he was working on one particular movement. He spent the whole night working on that movement. But I remember thinking like, oh, okay, that makes way more sense than just him hanging out watching TV while he's recovering. And then you go back and go, wait a second, you can, you can apply that on the other end of the spectrum too. And eventually, hopefully, you're applying it where folks are, everyone's doing really well. But I think too many coaches, and, and we're talking sort of a little bit, but I think too many coaches don't think about it in that fashion. One critical element as well is that the information you learn working with students with more limitations can flow the other way. If your interest really is working with, you know, with the top of the line athletes, hey, you'll learn techniques for working with them when they're working around an injury or learning how to do problem solving that help. It's yes, as teachers, we're going to develop our own specialties, you know, or your, your own preferred populations to work with. But one of the things that's really important, I think, especially early on as an instructor, is to work with as many different populations as possible because the techniques for one population may carry over to another one that you're not expecting. Oh, definitely. Like, say you have a student that doesn't have legs, you know, something like that. And then say you later have an elite student that cannot use the leg at the moment because of, I don't know, blow the knee out. Like that's like a very hands-on example because you already figured out what is possible, what's not possible. So you already know what this elite student then can work on. And I think also you need a very broad spectrum because I still believe that students teach me, I think, more than I teach them in the end. <laughs> that's, I think, like the positive irony. But at the same time, if you indeed only want to work with elite, which is totally fine, I do believe starting in the beginning, it's best to start with everything because in the end, as you say, they also get hurt. And I mean, I had injuries, like I'm no dominant left-handed. I hurt my left wrist, so I had to work with my right one. So in the end, it was actually great because now both my hands are much more, you know, I can use my right hand much more for many more things because I had to, was that what I had left? And I think sometimes an injury can be also a blessing in disguise. And also, it also makes you work on things you otherwise would neglect or things that you may not find so interesting because I don't know, you like the fleshy stuff, but you're kind of forced to. And actually you realize, oh my God, that makes my overall game so much better. So I think injuries can be so disheartening, but at the same time, I think at least speaking for myself, every time I get better, not only for myself and my own game, but also if another student has something similar, I already know what I can do. Of course, I always continue learning, but you have already a basic idea. And I think some coaches, they're like, oh, you cannot do that. Well, I uh, prepared to do this then yeah, sorry, I cannot help you. I've seen this really happening often and sometimes even blaming, you know, put the blame on the student or that they're kind of like, yeah, well, come back when you're healed. Or I've, I've seen these things where I'm like, no, you, that is basically your inability to teach or to be actually flexible in, <clears throat> in mind to find a way that it still works. That's spot on. And, you know, it's we're talking about dojo culture. The other element is, there are different kinds of black belts. There are black belts who they're great competitors. There are black belts who they're great teachers. There are black belts who they just help the community. Like 
they put in the time to help enrich the culture of, you know, the judo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu community. And the standards for different elements of the requirements for black belt thus will change based on who it is. With that in mind, that applies not just to, you know, the folks going for their black belts, but that applies to all of your different students. And, you know, like I live in the D.C. area. Um, I run the program at High Noon Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Fitness. And you can throw a stick in the D.C. area because it's the capital and find some with an interest, find like seven people with interesting jobs or interesting life histories. It's one of the reasons I like the area. And thus, you know, that student comes in and maybe they're having more difficulty because of a gross motor issue or, you know, that, that beginner seems like they're going to take more effort. You don't know what they do off the mat. They might do something very interesting or they might, you know, really enrich the culture of the school. And there are times when it goes the other way. You find out actually... I don't want this person in the program, but it's because of something off the map. <laughs> it shouldn't be because they can't do things yet. So that's another element here is I think when coaches close off based on just physical capacity and abilities, it gives up opportunities where, you know, maybe this person, maybe it's a middle-aged person who's had a very successful career and they end up being very helpful to that elite student you're investing a lot of time in because they help mentor that student in other areas or, you know, maybe this is somebody who this is how they're managing the stress of their day. And that in turn feeds back in a really positive manner. So like maybe they have kids and they have more energy and more patience for their kids. Or you don't know what the knock-on effects of being an effective teacher, effective coach for people often are. Um, in my own life and career, I was able to sidestep a lot of kind of the more traditional professional networking and stuff that you do as a working professional because I was on Geomat and that's a very casual, fun way to meet people. And because it's DC, people have interesting jobs, as I mentioned, you don't know who you'll run into. So the more you view a student, not just for their physical capacity to win medals for the school, but their capacity to kind of enrich the cultural texture of your school and create positive experiences. And likewise, recognize how much, at the end of the day, we're in customer service. Recognize that your work can enrich their lives. It just recontextualizes a lot of this. Yeah, I, I have one rule that I sometimes also say, like, I serve you, but I'm not your servant. It's like, because what you say is spot on, like basically customer service. We also had experience with some students and also some parents where I'm like, I serve, but I'm not your servant. There is like also like a clean, clean rule also regarding boundaries from the, what are also the limitations of what one can offer in a martial arts setting. Yes. I think um, because especially because it's so blurry, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's still work, it's still a business, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's not like when you are really in, in a company where you have like specific lines, specific codes of conduct. That, I mean, I do believe that sometimes martial arts schools could benefit from a little bit more of that, especially when it comes to safeguarding issues and all that, because also what we, you know, fight sports, uh, Jackson Sousa, like there's a lot that um, a lot more safeguarding is needed, definitely. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a great thing that it's very easygoing and dynamic, but there are also some pitfalls. And especially because of these pitfalls, I think clear rules and, and boundaries are important to actually keep it safe and fun. As a side note, also, what, what we had to learn, like we, we made mistakes that we kind of got too friendly of people that basically did not have our best interests at hearts either. It's not a bad thing. I think it was a great thing because that's how we also learned and we're like, oh, yeah, okay. So we kind of also figure out step by step what our core values are and like what it is that we do and what we, what we don't do. Mm 
That said, also what you what you say about it's not about the physical prowess. Definitely, I think everybody has a role to play. I mean, usually you have people that are need very good competitors, regardless of which belt level they have. Typically, they're not the best teachers. Sometimes you have both. That's like amazing when you have like both. But what I found that even when I have just people that are really good in competing, every time they come back after a competition, they just raise the level in the school because they learn so much from the competition. And when they then roll and spar with others, they just kind of by doing what they are doing best, they already elevate as well. In a way, they are teaching too, even though they don't necessarily teach in like the traditional ways that they lead the class and they, huh? but just by going there and that they get ex- more new experiences, they bring that back to the mat. So I think everybody has a, has a role to play, whether you are maybe the seasoned, but older practitioners, but calmer. So when new people start that are like, oh my God, I'm overwhelmed that they can, that you have people that understand is overwhelmed. So you don't feed them to the newbies who just want to show how good they are. You know, like I think yeah. everybody can have like this different type of role. And I think it's also important that you as a coach or as a team, that you also see that and know that because when I know somebody needs a bit a slower um, pathway to start, I'm not going to feed them to those that really are like onto competition. They kind of only want to roll hard. That's fine. Like usually I also am like, who wants competitive roles today? Who does not? That's fine. So that everybody knows exactly what the other wants. Because even if you have a competitor who wants competitive roles, but realize, oh, okay, this person doesn't want, that's fine. I can also do a flow round. Mm-hmm. But they know that the aims are, and, and there's consent. And I think that's also very important that I think that coaches can learn as well. I mean, like, look, uh, my husband and I, we started our school when we were blue belts because we left because of sexual harassment. Like, we're not black belts yet. But I do know that we, when it comes to coaching I and mean, these things, we're definitely far ahead of some others that maybe have already the skills that maybe even the medals to prove it, but don't know how to translate that. And I think the um, when you put all these elements together, that's how you step by step get like to like ultimate teaching for the student that you have. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are two things to follow on from that. You know, one element is that, comp- of course, competition background does not indicate teaching capability, you know. Three foundational movements in my own game came from playing around with my dad, um, and they're related to foot sweeps. And it would just be my dad and I playing around the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And my dad, you know, my dad was a solid player, but he himself didn't end up finishing his black belt. But he knew how to communicate stuff, and he did it in a way where I picked it up. And as a result, these movements that. I couldn't really necessarily do them when I was like 16, but then like years later, I'm competing at the black belt level. And I remember the day I was watching something like, Oh, wait a second. I learned that from dad. And you have other stuff like that. I mean, I, I do sometimes think that a lot of times when I actually have a conversation with a student last night and they were, you know, they had had a bad experience with the previous coach. And I was saying, you know, there are two elements here. One is understand that when someone's working with you, even if, in the end, that relationship goes poorly. You at least got an, part of one of the good parts of them, which is something to remember sometimes when, if you have a relationship breakdown with someone, you know, there wasn't anything really catastrophically wrong. It was just like there was a breakdown in the friendship. The other element that's really important, and by the way, I sometimes will tell people, hey, look, when you're competing, you're not competing by yourself completely. You know, you kind of have, you have the energy people put into you and in, in a sense, it's like you have your teammates, but that gets a little philosophical. But the other thing to keep in mind is how do you build the infrastructure to provide this type of support? And it can be hard when you're the lone instructor. Um, 
I do have some instructors that support, but a lot of times I am running classes on my own. So, you know, that's a skill set to be able to run and have three, maybe three or four different groups all doing different things. But early on, it's really good to have good communication with your instructors to, you know, be very clear, hey, this is the kind of attitude I want to have. And if you're having trouble working with a particular student, be vocal and let me know. So I can then, you know, figure out a new pathway forward, new, you know, kind of individualized education plan for that student. There are also times when sometimes a student is not, if there's not the right fit, maybe I don't have the resources, and that's totally legitimate. Um, I remember one time I was trained. I trained with Ryan Hall for a long time, and I remember one time he said, you know, hey, look, this is what I'm offering you folks on the more professional end of the competition team. Um, if this isn't what you need, I can tell you someone else who can help you. And that was something I was very impressed by when he did it. So, you know, understanding what the resources and limitations you have as an instructor and your instructors have can help you situate the student well. And that takes a little while to get. And that also takes, you have to be pretty humble (laughs) um, to recognize that. Yet there's a lot of self-awareness. Yeah, I think that's also what's lacking. It's also like what we teach also in the Thrive Drive methods. It's also an inside job. Like you can learn a lot about trauma, but if you don't learn also about how you show up on the mats, like when you seem closed off, you may know a lot about trauma. You may know how to help somebody, but if they don't feel comfortable coming to you, talking to you, like you miss out on a lot. And I think like there are many things that you said, I think that are so key is that indeed you need to go inside and inward to see like what everybody has some specialities. Like you cannot be good in everything. And I also don't think that's necessary because everybody has like a role to play. Um, and that's what you said about Ryan Hall, I think is also huge because it meant that he has like this growth mindset. Like he doesn't take it personally when something doesn't fit. It doesn't mean therefore that he's a bad person or you are a bad person or that something. No, it just means that at this moment may also change in the future. Who knows? But at this point, what is needed and what is what can be given doesn't match. And I think that is growth. It's the same like when you have a fallout with a coach or something, like fixed mindset people tend to be like, you know, this person sucks and like everything was bad, right? Um, but a growth mindset is like, okay, this didn't work out. And yes, I mean, also when it comes, for instance, in our case with sexual harassment, I'm like, obviously it does not work. I'm not going to stay in a toxic environment. But it doesn't mean that the jiu-jitsu was bad. Like it doesn't mean that I didn't learn anything. Um, and I can still be thankful for that part, even when that meant that from a principle and also from a uh, safety uh, perspective, obviously I cannot condone and I cannot support that. And I think when also coaches, I've heard the same thing as when the student leaves that then everything about that student was bad. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, okay, but why did they leave? Was it simply because it didn't match, which is totally fine? Or was it something that you could not provide or didn't want to provide? Like there is always like so many sides to it. And usually when you go inward or ask, that does a lot. And that's like the next thing I think coaches should really think about is to really address problems when they arise. Because maybe it's a misunderstanding. Maybe it's really literally nothing once you talk about it. But maybe it's really something big that could really go boom if you don't do anything about it. I don't know how that is in the judo community, but in the jiu-jitsu community, I really find that many are like, when you raise a question or something that may be a problem, either when you're a student or a coach, you're seen as like the drama queen, you are creating trouble. And they're like, oh, you're like basically pissing on our campfire where I'm like, no, this is like, you want to address this immediately because when you don't, it usually 
gets worse and many just put their head, their head in the sand and they're like, no, we don't want drama or politics in our school, but they actually create drama. Yeah, um, the ideology is coming from inside the house. Um, the judo community in the U.S. has a very long memory. You know, a lot of times I'll show up to a tournament and I might be counter coaching against someone who I worked with as a kid. Like mm -hmm. there's some dynamics in the martial arts community because a lot of times the people who are in this for such a long time, you don't know if that student is going to go off and run their own school someday. And you don't want there to be bad blood. Um, there is a self-serving mechanism where, you know, we're all locked in this community together as long as we're part of it. And the more you can avoid kind of open conflicts, the better it is for everybody else. Because here's another element, and this is once we're talking about this a little bit from a self-serving perspective. So the United States does not have the strongest national judo team, to say the least. We have some tough players. We have good prospects. But when you look at the people who've gone on to win Olympic medals in the U.S., they've often worked with several different coaches um, because different coaches have different specialties or different things to offer. Even if it was only, hey, I trained with this coach for a week and a half at some point, I picked up a couple of things. It takes a village to raise an athlete. Mm -hmm. And you don't want someone not to be able to access, you don't want someone not to be able to come to you because you had a conflict with their sensei, you know, 10, 15 years ago when it could help them. And likewise, you don't want to be in that situation yourself. You don't want to be in a situation where, hey, I'd really like to go learn from this person. But, you know, I or my student had some kind of disagreement with them, you know, six months ago, and it's hard to have that relationship. It doesn't help the community. Um, I'll always understand, and I respect the fact that, you know, a lot of we're running businesses, like there's going to be some degree of competition. There's competition for students, there's competition for revenue. But, I'm a big fan of generally open door policies between schools and maintaining good relationships between schools. Yeah, I just want to say like Berlin, we, I'm based in Munich, but in Berlin, it's really great. They have like many open mats and uh, schools really um, go to each other, which I find is great. Like in Munich, it's very difficult because we try, but like you have a little bit like this monopoly of some big ones and it's just not, there's just too much politics and not to and also for us because we're left i'm kind of like oh there are some places i like to go and some i also don't feel comfortable because of well because i know there's still safeguarding issues um but i like that in general also to our students i also say like go if you can train elsewhere if you're traveling or if you want go to open mats because that's like where you learn so many different things the school we also left like when i was traveling and I, I know it was not really wanted that i would go to different schools even if it was just for one class, just simply because I had a, you know, at a conference there and I was speaking there and I'm like, why not? Like I make new friends, you make new connections. You always will learn something. So that's a, also one of those things I'm like, when you realize your school is not supporting you, um, checking out different places, not necessarily to shift, to change, um, but just to learn um, for exchange, then I think you should maybe reconsider whether that's like a healthy school to, to train. Yeah, I actually, one of the instructors I spent some time with um, when I was in graduate school, a guy named Tim Sled. Um, Tim, for a while, held an upper-level business development role at Atos. And the person he was previously under, um, they just about chucked him out just because he stopped by Marcelo Garcia's school. And it's like, why wouldn't you go to Marcelo's school? You know, to begin with, Marcelo has a lovely reputation as a human being. Like, let's just start off with that. 
And then on top of it, one of the greatest, if not the greatest grappler of all time, of course you want to stop by within the context of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. You know, of course you want to stop by there and see what he has to teach or see what his instructors have to teach. And I often find, you know, I, I had, unfortunately, I don't want to go into my own recent judo politics issues, but, you know, I've seen issues recently where people were very protective of not letting their students run off to other places and were uncomfortable with students cross-training. And it's often a place from insecurity from the instructor. You know, if I, I'm not going to lose students if I do my job well. Um, and sometimes I just have students that it's not the right fit. And despite my best efforts, and that's fine. And yeah, McDonald's and Burger King are in competition with each other, but no one from McDonald's can turn away the money if somebody went to Burger King. Right. It's kind of a similar thing. Yeah, I think that's really a big one. And I like it. It's, it's a nice analogy. Um, yeah, I mean, I also went to Marcelo's, and it was so funny story because I got, I, I, bought a rash guard for my husband because I thought, well, it's, I think the best souvenir. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because everybody then in the gym was like, what? She bought your rash guard for Marcella Garcia, right? And it was like, the, that coach didn't really like. And I was like, oh, come on. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that your jiu-jitsu isn't good. It doesn't mean that we don't love training here. I think many coaches take so many things so personally. And I think that's so unnecessary because when they come to your school, it's hopefully for the reason that they want to be in your school. So just because we can all be, can be a bit like pen girls and boy girls uh, about people like Garcia or other people that you just kind of want to like just see how how it's like that it doesn't do anything it doesn't say that where you train that they think any ill any any less of you. Yeah, there's um, this Instagram account I love. It's just grappler with a sign, um, and there was one of them um, that the guy did. It was they come for the martial arts, they stay for the culture you create. And that, that's, you know, if you don't want to lose students, create a great culture. <laughs> that, and part of creating great culture is ensuring that it, you're and trying to set up so anyone who comes through the door, you can be helpful to. You know, we're, to tie back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, if you have a reputation of, hey, I can help you regardless of where you are in life, or where, you are, where you're at. You know, I can help you work around injury. Um, you know, I can help you if you have a disability or... You know, you have something you're trying to work around that helps create a better culture for the school. And some people might look at this and be like, well, why would I want to invest that energy? And it's like, well, to begin with, it's good to be able to keep people paying to keep your school open um, yeah. if we want to be really self-serving about it. And, you know, as mentioned, you can learn different elements that tie into different populations. It also just creates a very positive culture. Yeah, I usually we have also this line that I say, like, we are in the business of helping people thrive, not finding reasons why they can't. Exactly, exactly. This is it. You know, that's really like, and I ask, you know, what, what, in what business are you in, right? And I think that sums it basically up, like, we want them to thrive, not find reasons why they can't. So now I'm just curious about you. So how did you get into, you know, scouting, um, helping also elites? How, how did you get into this business? That, that's a great question. So the judo program I grew up in, um, we've won the majority of Olympic medals or they've won the majority of Olympic medals for the U.S. over the last 30 years. Um, if you look at mm -hmm. if you look at all the medals 1996 going on, only one of them for the U.S. didn't come from this dojo. So I just grew up around the Olympic movement and I grew up around, you know, watching my coach compete. I was a training partner for like Ronda Rousey and Kayla Harrison 
you know, Kayla and I were actually pretty close or were, um, I actually need to catch up with her, but, um, I just, I was in that space and I wanted to go into that space. I wanted to be an Olympian. I wanted to, you know, it's easy when, when you see people accomplishing things like that, you think, Oh, you know, it could be me too. And I didn't, I was a good player in the U S um, I was consistently nationally ranked. Um, I was a top junior player, but I couldn't quite make that jump. So, and some of that was due to some physical limitations. You know, I was not showing up for the best gross motor skill set to be able to say the least. Uh, my first practice, I started jogging. I ran straight into a wall and put a hole in the wall with my knee. Um, and my coach brings that story up from time to time. And my coach was like, what's going on? I say, oh, he's autistic. Okay, we've got to, we got to make some adjustments here. So judo was my special interest. And I would sit there and I would study it. And I remember starting to think about, you know, you'll see people do flow charts now. I was starting to try to do that when I was like 15 or 16. I started taking some of the techniques I learned from, I, I did an undergraduate degree in biology and some of the actual research techniques I learned on like how to log in behavior, I started doing for scouting and to help understand that. And I also had a really phenomenal mentor. Another coach I worked very closely with was Dr. Roddy Ferguson. Um, he's actually in my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu ranks under mm -hmm. him. And he had started judo very late himself. He actually did when he was a kid and then came back to it um, after he graduated college. So he also had to, and he's a smart guy, so he was very into scouting, very into figuring out how do you game plan for people. So he was very influential for me. And we actually co-authored a big scouting report for Kayla Harrison when she, that she used to help win gold in Rio in 2016. And you can find that online um, if anyone's interested, as well as I, I also work with Nick Apopolo, um, another Olympian for the U.S., um, made the top eight at the Olympics, and I helped write scouting for him then. So I kind of developed this skill set where you know, I'm, I've watched enough judo and I have the analytical techniques to do scouting, to, to break these things down. And in turn, that actually has fed back into my ability to teach, mm -hmm. having a good understanding beyond just, hey... So when Angi applies in these circumstances, well, you can then go so beyond goes, okay, well, what are the conditions I need for say Wanagi or for an arm bar for a choke? And yeah, you can get a little metaphysical to some degree with all of it. But once you understand after spending some time learning how to scout, like, hey, these three throws all do the same job, then when you're working with a student who maybe they can't do two of those throws because of an injury, you know, hey, here's the third option. Mm -hmm. These skill sets kind of met, can really mesh together and really help push each other forward. So could you give some examples like scouting? What do you look for? Oh, sure. So typically I run my scouting in four phases. Um, the first phase I'm usually looking for is, hey, what was producing scores? Um, mm -hmm. So in a judo context, that's throws, choke spins, and arm bars you know, what was this person pulling from? And that's kind of a decent starting point to guide the rest of the analysis. Um, and that's usually very quick. That's just watching the match and writing down what's scored. The first thing I start with is actually what's the grip fighting sequences they're using? Mm -hmm. Because gripping, you know, that sets the that sets up everything else. So, and actually the style of judo I came from was very kumikata, very grip fighting heavy. So we start with that, you know, what stance are they using? Was where are the spaces they're looking to control? Where are they trying to take the match? If I'm thinking about this from Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu context, what guard are they looking for? What style of passing are they looking for? Um, and once I have that down, I can then move to the next phase, which is what are the attacks they're primarily utilizing? I work with now. I, it's a little easier with my work stream because I work with a really great application called Athlete Analyzer. But I would have it where okay, I know they're attacking at these angles. It's not even as important what throw they're using, but what angles they're using. 
at first, mm-hmm. both what they're getting thrown with or what they're, they're getting tapped with, as well as what they're using themselves. And then you can start to develop a profile where you go, okay, this person against, you know, if I'm, it helps if I know who I'm scouting for, because then I can go and find similar matchups or matchups that are close enough. Um, you even have situations where sometimes you know a weight class really well and you have certain players that you just know their game really well and you can then go ahead and use them as an analog mm-hmm. um, for other folks. So a good example of this was when I was scouting Frank Valpopolo. Um, there's a player from Belgium, Dirk Van Tichel, who I had seen fight for years. And some of the people in Nick's weight class, Nick didn't have a match with them. And Nick and Dirk fight differently, but just understanding how Dirk fights allows me to understand and have a bit more context for some of those other matchups. So you go in phases. First, you know, what were they scoring with then gripping, then analyzing what attacks they were using, um, particularly looking at what angles and what gripping situations they're using off of, and finally doing a similar thing for groundwork. And at the end, you end up with more or less kind of a mixed methods study. You have a lot of qualitative notes of, hey, this is what I saw, as well as, you know, these statistics of what's the attack rate, what's the attack rate different periods, um, what directionals are they vulnerable to and things like attack rate that actually gives you a pretty good idea of hey is this the kind of person that they have great conditioning they're able to go the whole time or is this somebody who well you have to weather the storm early mm-hmm. or hey is this, likewise if i'm doing you have to scout not just your opposition you have to scout your own athletes so that gives you insight hey my athlete's having some trouble with conditioning or hey my athlete really does not attack along this directional you know i'm not seeing attacks you know if we think north, south, west, uh, east, um, I'm not seeing attacks along, you know, the northwest. Well, why is that? Is there is it because of positions that they're using through gripping to get to don't offer it, or is it because there's simply a technical gap? Mm-hmm. Does that make does this all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think this is very helpful because in the end, you want to make it as watertight as possible that you can kind of go from every angle because it's a it's it's kind of a dance. Like every second is different, so. I've seen in jiu-jitsu often that when people don't know anymore what to do, they often give up a good position. So they go back to a position from where they can continue. And I think like um, we play many games to kind of avoid that, that that we kind of keep on going. Like if that doesn't work, doesn't mean it cannot work, but we just need to figure out a different angle or that we can still keep on for it instead of conceding. Yeah. And that goes into like a concept. I'll go back to Radhi because I learned so much from him and still do. Um, this concept of deliberate practice where the analysis I was just talking about when I'm using on my own athletes or when I'm looking at opposition, that allows us to know what games to play. That allows us to know what situations to do. Um, you know, a, a good example of this was a lot of folks, there's not a lot of folks in my region who play what I refer to as the double sleeve game where we reach on a sleeve. But there's a lot of folks throughout in the southeast of the United States that do. Um, we have a lot of influence from Cuban judo, a lot of influence from Brazilian judo in that region. So simply spending some time where, hey, we're going to do a lot of rounds where we reach on a sleeve. And to win the round, quote unquote, you either have to throw or score from it or you have to safely get yourself to a different position. Mm-hmm. And in turn, then knowing the prerequisites and how to make that transfer, or how to create those attack opportunities you can start to really build a game. And I actually think Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is usually, a lot of people in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu kind of get this a little easier. Um, I think there's a bit more mm-hmm. of like a nerding out culture um, to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is cool. It's what I really love about it. Um, 
that I think is slowly going to penetrate more into um, the judo world. But what's interesting, too, is you actually see that in a lot of other combat sports. Mm-hmm. You know, if you talk to a boxing coach, you talk to um, really, really good MMA coaches, you talk to any sport where there's money on the line, so to speak, you'll start to see these types of analysis come through. Yeah, yeah, I think we're definitely growing. And also, like, there's so much more about ultimate skill acquisition, ecological dynamics, uh, constraints-led approaches to to learning. So I think it's also it's becoming more and more big in the martial arts. And I mean, you can, we see also the positive effects. I mean, I see it in ours. Like, we completely changed a year ago how we teach. And um, we have now people that start and already in no time, their positional awareness is really good. So even when they go to competition, they sometimes win, not because they know submissions even yet, but they just feel and understand so well the positional awareness, whereas their opponents who are often still very focused on technique after technique, that if they behave slightly differently, they don't know how to make that technique work. So there is a pause mm-hmm. or they indeed concede a situation. Whereas ours, because we don't focus, yes, we focus on techniques too, but first we just give them goals. I want you to get from A to B. How you do it is first your problem so that they also, we, we teach them problem solving and learning how to learn. So in competition, especially in the beginning, it's very fascinating that we had both in adults, teens and kids, that they still were winning matches, even though I know they didn't train so long. And I also know they don't know many submissions or things yet but they just, they were superior already simply for playing games. Yeah. Um, concept speed techniques. Like I was having a conversation with a couple of brown belts yesterday about like, what are the steps they have to do to get to black belt? And they both have somewhat non-traditional paths to do it. And one of the things I was talking to them about was the idea that you're going to have to explain, you know, what am I trying to do in any given position? What, you know, if my goals are to stay to a score from there or to hold somebody up or to transition from different positions, you have to be able to explain that. Mm-hmm. And that's something I want to, even my competitors, like they have to have that theoretical basis. But where that really tends to be helpful in my experience is judo is a really hard sport to start when you're older, when, you know, you're over, you know, it's hard to start when you're 20. It's really hard to start when you're 40. And that can be intimidating for folks. So sometimes going ahead and giving them some of that information up front or towards the front, you can't you can't overwhelm them. But, you know, just giving them the basics of understanding, like, yeah, generally speaking, you need to be able to hit, you know, of the eight directionals, you need to be able to hit three roughly from any position. And if you can hit three or know how to escape that position, it helps them organize things a bit more in their head. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I've seen a lot of people go in and they'll practice, you know, 10 different throws. They're all actually doing the same thing. And if I actually tell them like, hey, actually, you don't really need one, maybe two of those at, at more advanced levels. It suddenly it turns what appears to be this magnificent, massive task to learn, you know, the 67 recognized throws by the International Judo Federation, plus all the gripping, plus every elements and it suddenly becomes much more easy to understand and move forward on. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it definitely makes sense. Like we had last week, for instance, we got somebody who did uh, jiu-jitsu elsewhere and they came to our class. And it was very fascinating because we did just like, just a warming warming up thing. It's just passing the guard. You just, I just say, I want, I want you to go past the leg somehow and get chest to chest. When you get it, we just reverse the rules. That's just, that's it. And um, this one was, I think, a two-stripe white belt, I believe. And just had like these two passes, these two techniques and did them. And of course, I mean, uh, with us, when we do this warming up, we do it 30%. We don't go full hardcore. And this one, of course, went full hardcore, but all right. So he passed in the beginning. 
I was very proud that for one, my students did not amp up either. I was like, thank you. That was really good behavior. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but they were like, that arms race is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. They were like, okay, I, I want to solve this. So within minutes, they solved how to block that one. So then that student didn't have, didn't, th- those two paths didn't work anymore. So then he was also forced in a positive way to think differently. So kind of by remaining calm and uh, figuring out what to do against that past because we play so much. And also but with us, I'm like, mistakes are great because then you, it's learning and you know what didn't work. It's just information. Um, this other student, we kind of got them also really quickly into this growth mind because that really came clearly from a school where you just do technique and you drill it. You know, there's there was not much purpose in how you drill or how you learn something. And here um, he was like, why doesn't it work anymore? And I said, well, they just figured out what to do against it. So what can you do to still pass them? So and then he was kind of like, oh, this is actually so much fun. It's like problem solving. So, yeah, that's kind of like. I think, yeah, why I love learning so much. So my last question for you, what is your favorite quote or something you would like to give to our listeners? Um, I'd say, you know, my favorite quote for this context, it was, it was actually, um, so my, I came from Jimmy Pedro's father, Jim Pedro senior and Jim Pedro senior coached his son. And then he continued to coach all of us. And it was some right before the Athens Olympics. And I, I, I'm paraphrasing a little, Mm -hmm. But the line, they were asking, you know, because my coach, he was almost 34 when he was going for the second Olympic medal. And they kind of asked him about it. And they said, and Jim Pedro Sr. said, you know, how are you going to lose if you fight? How are you going to lose if you did all the things you need to prepare? You did, you know, you did all the training you had to do and you show up and you fight. How the hell are you a loser? And I think that applies to a lot of elements here, you know, not all of your students are going to reach all of their goals and you're not going to reach all your goals as a coach. But one of the things that we have to teach in martial arts that's really, really important is people talk about like the journey and stuff like that. And and that's true. And that's kind of what I'm getting at. But understand that you're learning skill sets on the mat that you're going to apply off the mat. That idea of, you know, I'm going to give my best effort here and do all the right things I can here. And at the end, if it happens, whether or not it happens or not, that's a little bit up to the universe, you know, that applies to a lot of other spaces, you know, raising kids, I'm gonna do the best I can by my kids, or I'm gonna do the best I can in other areas. And it's, it's not a cop out to avoid, you know, hey, I made a mistake, but it's just kind of an attitude that off the mat, I've done work in politics, I do a lot of work um, on environmental issues. And some of those issues are scary and kind of very stressful to work on, and just having this attitude of, all right, if I bring my best effort and it does not work out, and I don't have a regret about that effort, then you know I can move forward. No, I love that. I think indeed it's about radical responsibility, but also accepting I did all I could. And then also not downplaying yourself and still thinking you suck when you clearly didn't, even if you lost the medal. Yes. I thank you very much, Chris, for today's episode. I like it very much. Also, just to dive a little bit more into the judo world, which I am unfamiliar with. I thank you for that. For the listeners in the show notes, we will add. So I will ask you, Chris, to give me some links also from these reports in case people are interested that they just can click it. Mm-hmm. And um, I thank you and I wish you a lovely day. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris, for your perspectives and insights regarding scouting and teaching. I think it's crucial to teach in the beginning as many different types of students as possible to broaden your horizon. 
For the listeners, do you want to connect to Chris? Please find his details in the show notes below.